Hello, I'm Ryan Tate, and welcome to History of the Pacific Northwest, Episode 7, Soft Gold in Nootka Sound. This episode will be primarily about the life of Captain James Cook. Cook was perhaps one of the most famous navigators of the 1700s. His life and legacy is quite extraordinary, and his final voyage would forever change the lives of the Native Americans on Vancouver Island. I am kind of excited as this will be my first biographical episode of the podcast. Without much ado, let us get into our story. James Cook was born November 7, 1728, in the village of Martin, Yorkshire, Great Britain. His father, James Cook Sr., was a farm laborer. James Cook Jr. was minimally educated, but quickly learned about mathematics and astronomy, something that would serve him well as a sailor. At 16, Cook moved to a small fishing village called Staithes, where he apprenticed as a shopkeeper to a Mr. Sanderson. This would be his first time looking out at the sea on a regular basis. Not enjoying life as a shop boy, Cook moved to the port town of Whitby, where Mr. Sanderson's friends, John and Henry Walker, would take on the 17-year-old James Cook in their coal shipping business. Cook sailed on the coal vessels and learned all he could about algebra, geometry, trigonometry, navigation, and astronomy. Everything he would need to command a ship of his own one day. After his apprenticeship, he quickly moved up the ranks in the merchant sailing world. When he was finally offered command of his own vessel, Cook elected to join the British Royal Navy, enlisting June 17, 1755. In the Navy, Cook served during the Seven Years' War and developed his talents for surveying and cartography. Cook's scouting was extremely beneficial to the Royal Navy, and his maps and charts of the Canadian coastline would be used for the next 200 years. Cook made many important astronomic observations, including the transit of Venus across the Sun, which was used to calculate the distance between Earth and the Sun. Cook was tasked with three voyages of research and discovery between the years of 1768 to 1779. This included a circumnavigation of the world, and Cook sailed to places such as Australia, New Zealand, Tahiti, and Hawaii. Cook demonstrated a scientific curiosity and respect for the natural world. He heavily promoted the use of various cures for scurvy before the British officially adopted lime juice as its primary mode of scurvy prevention. The now Captain Cook, who had commanded two voyages in 1768 to 1771 and 1772 to 1775, was prepared to retire after his return in 1775. He had spent a long time at sea, sailed around the world twice going both west and east, and had a distinguished career. However, he was enticed by the prospect of a third voyage. Captain Cook was approached by the British Admiralty College with a mission of discovery from the Royal Society. Captain Cook was tasked with finding the Northwest Passage, a mission that Cook did not want to pass up on. Now, I know we've been here before, but Captain Cook was perhaps the most famous and one of the best navigators of his time. If anyone could find the Northwest Passage, it was him. The elusive waterway connecting the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic had tantalized many countries since Christopher Columbus's first voyage to the Americas. It was not a far-fetched idea given the Strait of Magellan was discovered as a passage through South America. 
Britain wanted the Northwest Passage discovered so badly that in 1745, British Parliament offered a £20,000 prize to any who discovered it. That would be just over $500,000 today. Captain Cook accepted this mission, and the expedition was soon put together. This was to be a voyage of scientific curiosity, but make no mistake, the British would task Cook with surveying land that may have strategic positions or natural resources. Cook was to sail to 45 degrees north latitude in the Pacific, that way he could avoid incidents with Spain, who held territory south of there, but Cook was not to explore the coast in detail until he made it to 65 degrees north. This route caused Cook to miss the Columbia River, as well as the Strait of Juan de Fuca, which leads into the Puget Sound. Captain Cook was outfitted with two ships, the Resolution and the Discovery. Cook would captain the Resolution, and George Vancouver would captain the Discovery. Vancouver will also feature more prominently on this podcast, likely in later episodes. Cook set sail on July 12, 1776, when the War for American Independence was happening in earnest. Great Britain's 13 colonies on the eastern seaboard of North America were in full revolt, as they had officially declared their independence days earlier. News of Cook's mission spread to the American colonies, and Benjamin Franklin gave orders that the new American Navy should not interfere with Captain Cook's mission, and should treat Cook and his crew, quote, with all civility and kindness affording them as common friends to mankind, end quote. Cook left his wife of 13 years, Elizabeth Cook, behind. She was eight months pregnant at the time. Cook, at the age of 47, set off on his voyage of discovery. Cook elected to sail east towards New Zealand. He reached Tonga and stopped from May to July of 1777. He then made his way to Tahiti, which he had been before on a previous voyage. He reaffirmed his relations with the Tahitians for a time before heading north. In Tahiti, there was a moment where Cook had lost his temper due to theft by the people of Tahiti. Theft was common in the Polynesian islands, as well as among many of the coastal natives of the Pacific Northwest. When Europeans came to these places, things would sometimes be stolen from their ships or camps. Many have speculated about the reasons why theft was so common, and there are several possibilities. One, Europeans had so much stuff that the natives didn't see how it could possibly be a problem if something went missing. Two, natives thought that as guests, the Europeans were supposed to share their wares with the locals. Three, locals saw something they wanted and just decided to take it. Any number of possibilities could be accurate, and there could be a multitude of reasons. One person's actions hardly are representative of an entire civilization. All this to say, thefts had happened in Tahiti, and Captain Cook severely punished those who had stolen from his expedition. Physical punishments like whippings and the removal of ears occurred, and even houses were burned. The crew was shocked and even said that this was out of character for the captain in their journals. Captain Cook was usually a more even-tempered individual. He demanded order on his ship, but he would rarely fly off the handle. After Tahiti, the expedition sailed north and on January 18, 1778, they sighted Oahu of the Hawaiian Islands. No European had ever seen these islands before, and Captain Cook would refer to them as the Sandwich Islands after his patron, the Earl of Sandwich. On the 20th, Cook put in at Waimea Bay on the northwestern shore of Oahu. 
The natives were fascinated with the vessels that the Europeans possessed. Hawaiian people were familiar with wind-powered ships and navigation, but had never seen ships the size of Cook's. The locals prostrated themselves before Cook and his men. It seems that they recognized Captain Cook as a chieftain and showed him the same respect that they would any other visiting chief. Captain Cook and his crew traded and bartered with the local people and also stocked up on provisions including fresh water. Cook spent time learning about the local culture and toured the village, as well as witnessed ceremonies and games, including duels and wrestling matches. It seemed that time was well spent on the Hawaiian Islands. At one ceremony, Cook even followed the local customs and attended shirtless with his hair down, as the Hawaiians would do. That would have been a highly unusual sight for the expedition crew to see their captain like that. Throughout his expedition, Cook frowned upon the crew engaging in sexual relations with any native people that they encountered. This was not necessarily out of prudishness, but because Cook feared spreading venereal diseases to the people who did not have experience with them. He did not want this introduction of disease to be a legacy of his travels. It goes without saying that Cook enjoyed his time in Hawaii greatly, fully immersing himself in the culture and getting to know the people. When the ships were stocked and ready, he would continue north on his mission. The Resolution and Discovery sailed north into the Arctic and even went above the Bering Strait. Cook's orders were to stay away from the Pacific coast until he reached 65 degrees north latitude, skirting the Pacific northwest coast. Up north, impassable ice fields forced him to give up his search for the northwest passage in the Arctic. Cook proceeded south along the Alaskan coastline, still searching for another entrance with no success. When they came upon Vancouver Island, they spotted an anchorage at Nootka Sound. Here, Cook encountered the Mowichet people. The Mowichet paddled their canoes out to the ship sprinkling flower petals onto the water, signifying peace and welcome. The Resolution and Discovery anchored at Nootka Sound and went ashore to the village. The crew traded with the Mowichet people, who had a great deal of furs to offer the Europeans. Among these were the pelt of the sea otter. The sea otter is significantly larger than its river otter counterpart. Sea otters can grow up to 5 feet long and often weigh between 80 to 100 pounds. Their pelts were highly prized for their durability, water resistance, and for their silky smooth touch. Only the indigenous people who hunted sea otter knew how to cure and care for the furs. The furs were prized for clothes, bedding, and blankets. It was the sea otter pelt especially that would change Pacific Coast commerce. Cook and many others of his crew noted the Mowichet people's ability to trade. According to Cook, they were not interested in any useless trinkets and would not even consider the Europeans' cloth as a worthwhile trade good. They strongly desired knives, chisels, iron, and tin. They were keen on getting a great deal, and nothing less. Cook even noted that the trinkets the Europeans carried with them were nothing compared to the ornaments that the people of Nootka already possessed. After Cook's layover at Nootka Sound, he knew it was time to think about winter quarters. His original orders were to winter on the Kamchatka Peninsula, or wherever Captain Cook thought best. Cook thought about returning to Hawaii for the winter. Let's see, Russia in the winter or beautiful Hawaii? Yeah, that's not exactly a difficult choice. The Resolution and Discovery proceeded south, 
and sighted the island of Maui, November 26, 1778, but continued on to the island of Hawaii, the largest and easternmost island of which the Hawaiian Islands get their name. On January 6, 1779, Cook was greeted by what he recalls as a vast number of people and canoes. He said that the people numbered in the thousands. This recollection would also be the last entry Captain Cook wrote in his journal. The resolution and discovery arrived during the festival of Makahiki, where the god of peace and prosperity, Lono, was ascending over Ku. Ku was represented by the king of the island of Hawaii, Kalani Opu'u. Cook was greeted with great respect upon his arrival and treated like a powerful visiting chieftain. Some have claimed that the Hawaiians believed Cook to be an incarnation of the god Lono. This claim has almost no evidence to back it up, and is highly unlikely. As I have said on this podcast, the myths of indigenous people believing that Europeans were gods was propagated a long time ago by some of the first historians of the first contact between Europeans and Native Americans. Most of these historians believed indigenous people to be backward and savage, and believed Europeans to be cultured and civilized. Therefore, many of these historians reasoned that Europeans would appear as gods to indigenous people. With time, these myths have begun to unravel. Upon Resolution and Discovery's arrival on the island of Hawaii, our narrative gets confusing. Sources of Cook's time there are often contradictory and buried. We will do our best to make sense of what happened. The crew chose a spot to set up camp, but it was tabooed as King Kalani Opu'u was away and owned all the ground of the island. He had to give permission. The king did arrive on January 26, 1779, and the taboo was lifted. The king welcomed Cook and greeted him kindly. There were games such as boxing and wrestling matches to watch. The king presented Cook with his own cloak and feathered cap as a gift. A feathered cap at this time was rare and a valuable treasure. Captain Cook accepted the gifts, but from what I can tell, did not offer the king anything in return. During their time, some of the crew had stolen some of the natives' carved images, which greatly upset the natives. These carvings may have either depicted deities or could have been symbolic of their ancestry. Captain Cook forced the sailors to return the carved images before they left. The resolution and discovery left on February 4th, but a storm forced them to return on February 13th. Upon their return, King Kalani Opu'u was away, and canoes could not enter or leave the bay. This meant that Captain Cook's crew was violating a taboo. When they made landfall, the present leaders of the Hawaiians inquired about the ship's return. Many noted that they did not seem at all happy about seeing the Europeans back on their island. It is possible that they had already wore out their welcome. From the sources, it seemed the tensions were on the rise on the island of Hawaii. Many journals make notes about the expedition party feeling unwelcome and feared that the Hawaiians' familiarity with them was not exactly benefiting the relationship. Theft was also becoming a problem. A Hawaiian stole a pair of tongs from one of the ships, and Captain Cook had this man flogged with 40 lashes. A crowd gathered to witness the lashing, and as you can imagine, were not thrilled with one of their own being whipped by these strangers. The Hawaiians began to throw stones at the Europeans. 
Cook asked the local chiefs for help cooling things off. They managed to get the crowd to cease throwing stones and prevented things from escalating further. More thefts happened though, and Hawaiians were still pelting the expedition crew with stones when they got a chance. At one point, one of the sailors shot and killed a Hawaiian man during an altercation. Captain Cook wanted to prevent a full-scale battle and decided to go to King Kalani Opu, who had returned February 14th. His plan was to bring the king on board his ship and from there convince the king to tell his people to stop. This sounds like and looked an awful lot like taking a hostage. It's reported that the king, upon realizing that he was being drugged onto the European ship, began to resist. When the Hawaiian people saw their king being forced away against his will, they attacked. When the fighting broke out, the sailors quickly evacuated to the ships. Captain Cook and his marines on the beach opened fire upon the crowd to give the crew time to get in boats and row for their ships. The European rifles took a long time to reload, and so after getting a shot off with their rifles and pistols, they were forced into a melee. They were vastly outnumbered, and the evacuating crew looked on as Captain Cook and four Marines were killed on the beach, the captain being dealt a fatal blow to the head with a club. Captain Cook died February 14, 1779, at the age of 50. Among those killed in the battle were also the four British Marines, as well as 16 Hawaiian people. The events of that February remain somewhat of a mystery to historians and scholars. Early histories depict the native Hawaiians as primitive savages who looted and stole and then murdered the beloved Captain Cook. This depiction does not stand up to scrutiny. We've seen that for all of Captain Cook's ability and desire to immerse himself in local cultures and customs, he was also quick to dole out harsh punishments on native people for small transgressions. There is also the problem of our sources being horribly one-sided. There is no record from the Hawaiian perspective that exists to this day. Therefore, we are left to wonder what really happened. Command of the expedition would be given first to Charles Clerk, who resumed the search for the Northwest Passage. He would die while the resolution and discovery were stopped in Kamchatka. Clerk likely suffered from a case of tuberculosis. Then command was passed to John Gore. Gore was returning the expedition to the United Kingdom, and stopped in Canton, China for a resupply. Here, they decided to sell the sea otter pelts that had been acquired at Nootka Sound. They were shocked when the worn-out pelts fetched $120 a piece. That is roughly equivalent to about $2,000 a fur in today's currency. The crew almost mutinied in a bid to return to Nootka Sound to purchase as many furs as they possibly could. No doubt, one could probably have seen dollar signs in their eyes. Gore managed to get the crew under control and appealed to their sense of duty by reminding them that they had a mission to complete. News of the value of sea otter pelts in the Pacific was soon to be spread. It would attract many merchant vessels who were eager to stock their holds with fur and make a killing selling them in China. This burgeoning fur trade would bring a great deal of attention to the Pacific coast and the Pacific Northwest, adding quite a bit of economic value to the region. As I wrap up this episode, I'd like to take a look at the life and legacy of Captain Cook. He was, for all purposes, an excellent navigator. He also took care to ensure the safety of his men by testing and implementing means of scurvy prevention. 
He was a scientist and sociologist in many ways. Yet, he still looked down upon indigenous people as inferiors. These attitudes were unfortunately all too common amongst Europeans at the time. His distrust and quick temper may have been what killed him in Hawaii. Captain Cook is memorialized with monuments, as well as restaurants and inns being named after him, several of which are located on the Oregon coast alone. His parents' home, which Cook undoubtedly visited, was disassembled brick by brick and rebuilt in Melbourne, Australia in 1934, where it resides as a tourist attraction. James Cook's wife, Elizabeth, was widowed. Sadly, she not only outlived her husband, but also every one of her six children. Most of her children died very young, but the two oldest, James and Nathaniel, died at 31 and 16 respectively. Elizabeth would live until 1835. She would die at the age of 93. After her husband's death, she took great care to memorialize her husband and family. She even wore a ring that contained a lock of her husband's hair. Before her death, she made sure to destroy every letter that was written between her and James Cook. She also destroyed diaries and other records that she deemed too private for anyone else to see. All this is much to the dismay of historians of the life of James Cook. But you have to respect and admire Elizabeth's decision. She did not want anyone peering into their private life, no matter how far removed she was from it by life or time. The life of James Cook aside, his voyage was the harbinger of things to come. Soon after, many ships were sailing up the Pacific coast in search of sea otter pelts, which traders referred to as soft gold. The soft gold rush would create and sustain contact between the people of the Pacific Northwest coast and the Euro-Americans looking to turn a profit off this lucrative fur trade. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next time.